This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. We know that doctors are less likely to order screening tests the same way in patients with obesity. We know that weight stigma as a whole, when we look at weight stigma and see if there's an association with weight itself, the people who experience greater degrees of weight stigma tend to struggle more with their weight. Welcome to Wellness, Fact versus Fiction. I'm Dr. Danielle Bellardo, and I'm a cardiologist who loves evidence-based medicine and nutrition science. But as a millennial, I've watched endless wellness fads take over social media. It's my mission to get to the bottom of things by bringing on the top expert physicians and scientists to help us determine what is fact versus fiction when it comes to your health. It's time to leave the pseudoscience behind and become empowered when it comes to our wellness. Hi, everyone. This week, I am so excited to introduce to you our guest, good friend of mine, Yoni Friedhoff. He's an associate professor of family medicine at the University of Ottawa, the medical director of the Bariatric Medical Institute in Constant Health, and an outspoken public health advocate. His book, The Diet Fix, was a number one national bestseller, and his blog, Weedy Matters, has enjoyed over 24 million visits. He's also a columnist in Medscape. He's got bylines with the New York Times, and he's a regular international media outspoken personality who helps us to understand evidence-based medicine, especially as it comes to diet, obesity, and health. During this week's episode, we discuss how weight stigma and implicit bias among healthcare providers impacts the quality of medical care for individuals with obesity and how healthcare providers can evaluate their own bias in order to improve the quality of care we provide for patients. We discuss how patients who have obesity can advocate for themselves while navigating this stigma in healthcare. We discuss how compassion and empathy need to be the foundation of all medical care and why patients deserve individualized recommendations for weight management and a one-size-fits-all approach never works. We discuss the new advent of medications for obesity, how GLP-1 receptor agonists are changing our patients' lives for the better, and how we need to destigmatize obesity pharmacotherapy and stop blaming patients for a complex, multifactorial, neurohormonal condition. We also touch on why Yoni's been so outspoken about misinformation from different diet tribes on social media and how we can all better advocate for evidence-based scientific communication. Hope you guys enjoy. Well, I am so excited to be here today with one of my favorite, most evidence-based physicians, well-respected obesity clinician, and just amazing all-around wonderful person and friend, Dr. Yoni Friedhoff. Thank you so much, Yoni, for being here today. Thank you for having me here today. So, Yoni, I will have already read your intro, but I would love for you to just give everyone here from your own words and perspective, a little bit about yourself, a little overview about Dr. Yoni Friedhoff and, and what you do. Sure. So I, uh, I'm an associate professor of family medicine at the University of Ottawa. And in 2004, I left a more traditional family practice to open an interprofessional uh, evidence-based behavioral weight management office. Uh, we've been working there since 2004. And although we started with sort of a co-pay type approach. Living in Canada, where we've got a lot of socialized healthcare, uh, most of what we do now is paid for by the Ministry of Health, where we 
work with parents of children with obesity between the ages of five and 12, uh, where we work only with the parents and not with the children. So I feel uncomfortable. It's not wise to work with kids that young. They shouldn't be worrying about their weights. And we also uh, help with the pre and post surgical care for 30% of our city's bariatric surgery patients. Uh, so that's been the bulk of, of what we've been doing. And so it's been an interesting journey. And over the years, too, I've had chances to get involved in writing, uh, getting involved with some you know, TV type interviews. Uh, it's been a lot of fun and very unplanned fun. Yoni is going to be very humble which I already knew going into this, but I will brag for him because Yoni is one of the most incredible people to follow on social media for nutrition and evidence-based information. I like to consider you the nutrition and obesity medicine version of Jen Gunter um, because you two are both two of my favorite people. And Jen's already done two episodes on the podcast. And I love you both are Canadian. There's something special about you guys. Um, I just, I love the way that you bring empathy, compassion, but also no nonsense, you know, calling out the bullshit sort of presence on social media, because it is so hard for patients nowadays to navigate what diet is best, you know, what's best for menopause, for example, for her patients, what's best for losing weight, what's best for you know, your health or, you know, all the buzzwords like longevity. And I just truly appreciate that you've actually been a pioneer in the space, to be honest. I mean, when I think back to when I first started following you on social media, and I've known you for quite a few years, but when I think back to it, you were one of the first people that was really bringing attention to misinformation. And as we've seen through the pandemic, it's been a huge public health problem and the way echo chambers work. But I would love for you to start off with, there's a really interesting, a little bit of a humorous story uh, about, I think it's still your pinned tweet about how you had an evolution of how uh, you called out some misinformation on nutrition science and ended up giving you a promotion. Basically, I forget the year, uh, might have been around 2015, and I was at a conference, uh, the Obesity Medicine Conference, and I was there, and there were a couple of keynote speakers, really world-renowned speakers who are giants in their field, and there was a a physician who's involved in uh, weight management who tweeted out something which, to me, read quite disparaging about those two clinicians because those two clinicians happen to themselves have obesity. And this person put out a tweet that stated something to the effect of how glad he was that we were all in the hands of these experts where he had experts in scarecrows. That's vile. Very vile. I mean, weight bias permeates medicine. And unfortunately, and there's been actual studies showing this to be true, even among physicians who themselves treat obesity. I called out the content of the tweet without naming the individual because I know how in Twitter works and uh, you know calling out the individual suddenly it'll all be back on you for calling out the individual and being a bully but I called out the tweet and the content with uh, just a Twitter stream speaking to the fact that you know weight does not measure a person's intellect or contribution to the field but it might be something where, those who criticize weight as being able to measure those things are themselves lacking in intellect and empathy and um, 
you know, medical knowledge. In any case, uh, within a few hours, it blew up quite a bit and ended up getting written about in Vox by my friend Julia Belouz, who interviewed this individual as well. And he went on to state that he, he sort of doubled down on his statement saying, well, would you take financial advice from a homeless uh, individual? And so it was quite clear that it was uh, intended the way I read it. In any case, it blew over. Everything on social media eventually blows over. For those listeners who are involved in calling people out, even when things go uh, in an interesting direction and you start having a huge amount of uh, angry people yelling at you, yep. you know, within a day or two, it's over. So it's really, people forget that sometimes. Uh, but in any case, maybe it was two, three months later, and I got a phone call from uh, my dean, from the dean of family medicine, asking if she could chat with me. And I said, sure, I hadn't spoken since I had my appointment to become an assistant professor. And I thought she was just following up. And so I made the appointment. I went down to see her and sat in her office. And she then told me that someone had complained about me and that they wanted my academic appointment rescinded. And it was a nephrologist from Toronto who had called to complain about me. And it was the individual who had put out that fat shaming tweet. Uh, in any case, she was terrific. She said, I, I investigated it and realized this is, I think she called it a, a tempest in a, in a teacup. And uh, she said, but I did notice you've accomplished quite a lot. Maybe you should apply for an academic promotion. And uh, so I did apply for an academic Lovely. promotion. And a few months later, I received word that I was promoted to an associate professor. So sometimes uh, there are happy endings to angry stories. I love it. I love this story so much. I think that <laughs> it's just so warm hearted because the reason being is that it's there's so many levels to why this story is amazing. But one is that, you know, oftentimes I think a lot of physicians and healthcare providers who listen to my podcast, whether it's nurses or dietitians or, you know, anyone, they, they sometimes feel like they can't speak out against some of the misinformation, especially through this pandemic. It's been, you know, obviously quite a challenge. I think your story is really inspiring because it shows that there are people out there that are doing the right thing by by our patients, by the by public health. And I do view social media as a public health outlet. It really provides the, an opportunity for physicians who deservedly or not have voices that are recognized for us to speak out and to affect change at times even beyond the geographical boundaries of our office walls. And I feel personally, I mean, that's why I do it. And I have been speaking out for quite a long time. Uh, but I do it because I feel it's my responsibility. It's part of my job. I'm, I'm supposed to advocate for my patients, but it's not just my patients in my office, in my room at the time. It's, you know, more broadly speaking, it's the public and society. And if there's something that I think I can affect change with, I'm happy to certainly try. And uh, I can understand why more doctors and healthcare providers don't. It is a a very dirty playground. Yes, absolutely. Uh, it is. That uh, You do need to have a thick skin and it can be frustrating. And I won't lie. I've definitely had times where I've lost sleep and uh, been upset by interactions I've had as a consequence or within social media. But, you know, I, I still think, again, it, it, taking a step back, things blow over. It's not seen by as many people as you might think. And it, it really is a way to get your voice heard.
I do think also, you know, it's important to know, I think that anyone listening, you know, it's like never too late to also shift your viewpoint. I fell for authority bias often in the beginning where I used to totally believe back in the day that a low-fat plant-based diet was the best thing for health and reverse cardiovascular disease, all this stuff, which obviously a low-fat plant-based diet can be healthy, but it is not necessarily the best for health. And there are various different dietary patterns that are very healthful and can help our patients. And so I have fallen into the echo chambers. Then I went through an echo chamber where I thought fasting was great. Then I went into an echo chamber where I thought that keto was even great. And so I, I've traveled through all of the echo chambers and, um, I learned a lot from you about, about, I think, viewing our own bias as physicians and trying to be really open and agnostic to the evidence. And that has been one of the greatest lessons for me as a clinician, because although I am personally vegan, I've worked really hard to keep my own personal viewpoints separate from that, my clinical viewpoints and um, that and the research I do. And so I, I do think that You've had a huge part in that. You've really made a big difference in the way I've even viewed how we can have introspection in ourselves as physicians to kind of see where our own bias is. And so how have you always been so agnostic with the data? Because you really are such a great example of that. So I I don't think I always was. So when we first opened in 2004, I did what I was taught to do, which was to set a goal of a 10% weight loss with a patient to put them on a balanced deficit diet. I mean, this is 2004. So it's sort of right after the heyday of low fat being an era, but uh, pre-keto and low carb to some degree, although Atkins was around then too. So all this to say, I did what I was taught. And I realized, I'd say within the year of starting practice, that this was not patient-centered you know, that this was clinician-centered. I was just doing what I was told rather than working with the person who was actually in front of me. I was trying to impose upon them a viewpoint or a treatment plan without taking them into account. And I realized that that was a huge mistake. And that's where uh, I developed a concept uh, or something that I've called since then best weight. Uh, which is a person's best weight is whatever weight they reach when they're living the healthiest life they actually enjoy. That was very useful in just taking away this idea that there are right numbers. As far as dieting goes and diets go, it also became very clear to me that so many things influence whether a person enjoys what they're eating enough to stick with it. So using the best weight concept, if you don't like the diet you're on while you're losing your weight, you're not likely to keep your weight off. And recognizing that allowed my office and me to start exploring all the different diet modalities. And really, at this point, we really have zero um, particular, we don't care what someone does if they like it. Um, You know, I can think of people in our office right off the top of my head who are on a low-fat diet. I know people who are on balanced deficit diets. Uh, We've got plenty of people trying keto. I've got one intermittent fasting carnivore whose lipid profile is better than mine and who's maintaining an over 100-pound weight loss for over four years. Wow. Uh, So we try to cater to the individual. And then it's a doctor's job to ensure that a person's diet is not affecting their metabolic health. And we can run blood tests to explore that. Um, We can do diagnostic imaging if necessary to explore that. 
We can recommend supplements for some patients if there's a need like for that carnivore. But all this to say that you need to like your life if you're going to keep living with it. And that has been very liberating as a clinician for sure, but also is much more realistic. Uh, you know, and it's not just palate, of course. You know, it's it's also your lifestyle, whether you have a family, how privileged you might be. And privilege is a huge piece that people huge tend piece. to stop talking about. I'd say the percentage of people who are sufficiently privileged in life to make intentional behavior change around weight of focus uh, can't be more than five to 10% of the population, really at most. I mean, this is in perpetuity trying to make changes around food and fitness, where food is influenced by thousands of genes and dozens of hormones in terms of our behaviors around it. This is a very uncommon thing. And so I guess that's where we fell into coming up with sort of this idea of figuring out what works for you. Uh, I wrote a book about that as well, which uh, was marketed differently than I'd hoped. So uh, I had originally called my book A Prescription for Chocolate, The End of Traumatic Dieting, and uh, it got marketed as a different title called The Diet Fix, which has the same content, but uh, really it was about putting an end to traumatic dieting, which I think is what most people tend to undertake, which is suffer, suffer, suffer until you can't anymore and then quit. And that just doesn't work long term. I think that's a really comprehensive and well thought out approach to, to being thoughtful with patients and, and meeting them where they're at. And I think that's a common theme for pretty much every single expert I've interviewed in our podcast is that there's so much more nuance and individualization that's required. And a huge part of that supporting the patients with what's best for them and what is best for one is not going to be best for another. So I would love for you to explain, you kind of touched on it before, but how does weight stigma, which is such a huge, massive, massive problem among both physicians and also the general public, how does that impact how we diagnose obesity, how we treat it, how patients feel about it? Because I know you have a lot of really great thoughts on this topic. And I think this is one that is so important. So weight stigma is hugely pervasive, and it's even pervasive among people who have obesity. Uh, so in-group bias, which is uncommon, actually, is quite common. Even people with obesity look down upon other people with obesity wow. and blame those individuals for their challenges. Medicine is supposed to be free from blame, right? So our job as clinicians is to support patients and treat and help, et cetera, but not to judge or blame on the basis of how or why they might have their medical conditions. And that's true for almost everything except for obesity. As far as how it might impact care, there's lots of ways it's been shown to impact care. So people with obesity who've experienced weight stigma are less likely to seek medical attention in a, in a hurried basis because they might themselves have negative experiences that make them less likely to trust or want to see the doctor. We know that doctors are less likely to order screening tests the same way in patients with obesity. We know that weight stigma as a whole, when we look at weight stigma and see if there's an association with weight itself, the people who experience greater degrees of weight stigma tend to struggle more with their weight. And whether there's a causal relationship, thankfully, we'll never know because we can't run a randomized trial like that. Um, but you know, all this to say is definitely there's the possibility that keeping weight stigma on patients makes things worse rather than better. We know that medical care is administered differently. So right now, we, we know with COVID, uh, people with obesity uh, are said to have a heightened risk of more severe cases of COVID. 
That was true also with H1N1. And in fact, mortality rates in people with obesity were much higher with H1N1. But when researchers then controlled for the delivery of antiviral, it turned out people with obesity were being systematically treated differently. And once it was uh, controlled for when in their course of illness a person was administered antivirals, then suddenly this increased risk with obesity disappeared. And it does make me wonder whether that's true with COVID as well. You know, are people with obesity with COVID presenting later to be emerged? Are they less likely to get admitted to the hospital? Are they less likely to get proned in the ICU? Do they get steroids later? Do they get Paxlovid later? Like, uh, are there differences in care? And uh, I think there might be. I, I don't see why there wouldn't be, given that we know there's precedent for that. And that's not, of course, just for viral diseases. It's for everything. And I even think to myself about, we all know that there are studies showing increased mortality risks among patients with obesity. How much of those mortality risks could be attributable to the fact that people with obesity are being treated differently than people without obesity? where diseases might not be treated in the same manner or with the same concern or care. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know how I'm not a data scientist and I'm certainly not a researcher. I'm an opinionated clinician, but I would love to see somebody smarter than me try to figure out how would you control for those variables in exploring whether or not weight itself confers this increased mortality risk or whether weight leads to different treatments which in turn increase mortality risk. I mean, we know that weight absolutely increases the risk of a whole host of medical conditions. That's undeniable. Uh, but I, again, wonder how much of the, you know, the scary headlines we read about obesity might be traceable to weight. And then I think about drugs. I'm sure that you and Spencer spoke about uh, medications. There's great medications now coming out for weight management. I really think that they will change weight bias really uh, significantly uh, as they become more acceptable. And, you know, an example, and I'm, I know I'm rambling, but this is one that you and I spoke about. A couple of years ago, I called you to talk about the fact that I suddenly had an arrhythmia. Uh, I had an irregular heart rate. I was exercising. It was the summertime. And it was enough that I noticed it and didn't feel good. So I called you and a couple other cardiology friends, and you all told me about lifestyle changes I could make, you know, stop my caffeine, stop my alcohol, work on sleep, get my exercise. And so I did all those things, and they didn't work. And I ended up getting admitted to the Heart Institute here in Ottawa for three nights because the rhythm became dangerous by uh, New Year's, and got medicated and got sent home. And I bring it up because here is a condition where I did not choose to have an arrhythmia, uh, I did not uh, want to have an arrhythmia. I did all the lifestyle things that I was supposed to do to make it go away. It didn't go away. And now I'm medicated. And I'd rather not be. But all this to say that I don't judge myself for needing medication to treat this condition that I don't want that I tried my best to deal with. And uh, I think the same will be true for weight. And the new drugs that are coming down the pike look great. And when we can get to a point where, just like my arrhythmia drugs, all my instructions with my drugs are is take them, you know, that, that I don't have any more instructions. When we can do that with weight, I think weight bias will suddenly melt away because all the people who ascribe this to some sort of, you know, failing or psychological burden or challenge, et cetera, 
when we turn off the physiology and suddenly everything goes away, well, clearly this was not psychology that was leading people to struggle. This was not a choice that people were making. So my real hope is that weight bias will fall away as we get better and better meds over time. So much to dig in here. I <laughs> absolutely agree. I mean, I agree with so much of it. I have so many follow-up questions. Thank you so much for bringing up that plethora of important points. Starting with one is, because I definitely want to get into the medications. I'm going to save that for a bit, but sticking on weight bias for a second. One thing you said you really mentioned, which is so, so, so important that I cannot let fall out of my brain before I forget it is that you mentioned a lot of the disease processes we see in general that are, we see often more with um, more adiposity, more excess adiposity. We could see a higher rate of X, Y, or Z disease process. And the question you asked, which is so brilliant, so important is yes, we do know that excess adiposity can lead to X, Y, or Z disease process, but how much of it is also attributable to those factors of weight bias in which they are not getting earlier care. They are not getting the exact same medications or treatments. They are not getting. And so I think that's really important. So for any, so I want to twofold questions. My first question is going to be for any healthcare providers listening, whether it's a nurse, a registered dietitian, a physician, a PA, a nurse practitioner, anyone listening, what can we do to have some introspection and think about weight bias and get better about it. And then my second question is, what can patients listening right now who do have obesity, what can they do to advocate for themselves? So for clinicians, uh, there are some resources that I can share with you and you can include in your show notes. Yeah. There's an implicit bias test that people can run, but you know, it's safe to say that most of us have implicit bias against patients with obesity. I think it's, you know, I think you can safely assume you probably have some. Yep. Um, but the easiest litmus test for a clinician is for somebody to ask themselves if they approach obesity the same way they approach any other chronic non-communicable disease. If you ascribe more morals or choices or blame to obesity as a condition than you do to high blood pressure, or dyslipidemia, well then, yeah, you probably are biased and are in fact approaching your patients in a manner that is not always going to be helpful or well-received. Unfortunately, I think that that speaks to a large number of clinicians out there, and sometimes they get mad at me when I point out that perhaps they're biased. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, speak to anybody with obesity about their experiences with healthcare, and they will explain that, yes, indeed, there is tremendous bias there. I even think about medications. So with the new medications, and we can certainly talk more about them uh, down the road, but the pushback from the medical community Absolutely. is bizarre. It's bizarre. It is one of the most frustrating things in the world. I don't get it. It's like, you're going to need to take it forever. So that's a knock. I mean, that's what we do with all chronic diseases. It's going to cost money. All drugs cost money. It's got side effects. All drugs have side effects. And quite honestly, I'll tell you from my experience prescribing these drugs, they're minimal compared to many other drugs. Uh, so all this to say is there's tremendous weight bias and nobody says those same things about the treatment of high blood pressure. We need those drugs for life. Uh, if you stop the drugs, the condition comes back. The drugs can be very expensive. All of those things are true, yet we only moralize about that with respect to drugs for weight. 
So that's one thing I think clinicians can easily do on their own in terms of considering how they're approaching them. As far as patients go and how you know patients can approach things, it's much more challenging because of the power differential between doctors and patients. Yep. And uh, I did an interview just a few weeks ago with a reporter about, you know, what if you want a drug, but your doctor won't prescribe it to you? What should you do? And it is a big problem. I have absolutely met patients who wanted to try medications to help with their weight management, whose clinicians did not prescribe it to them. And, you know, I encourage patients to become educated about what the criteria are for drug uh, uh, prescription, because there are criteria. You know, I think that sometimes people, especially people who have had bad experiences with doctors, sometimes they might forget that, you know, in fact, there are guidelines for, for care. And sometimes antibiotics are a great example. Sometimes people will get mad because you don't prescribe antibiotics. Same is true for all medications, including medications for weight management. But if a patient does qualify, I think having a discussion with their doctor to ask their doctor why it is, despite their qualification for the medication, they want to withhold that medication from them is one step. If someone is fortunate enough to live somewhere where there are other doctors, finding other doctors is a good idea. But here in Canada, though healthcare is covered, which is lovely, uh, there is a scarcity of doctors. And so it's challenging to let someone go. But I wish there was a great answer for patients other than education, calm discussion. Uh, You know, unfortunately, doctors are people too. And if you go at your doctor all guns blazing, that probably won't go well, just like it wouldn't go well if your doctor came at you all guns blazing. And uh, and so it's, it's, it really is challenging for patients to navigate this on their own, which is why it's so important for clinicians to be taught in med school more importantly, to be examined by licensing exams around issues about weight management, about weight bias, uh, because uh, until we teach new clinicians to do better, I think that we are not going to see a sea change. That is so well said, Yoni, and so important because for anyone who is listening that has either struggled with weight or someone that is managing patients with obesity, I think that We need to strip down this idea that weight loss and that weight in general has to do with a just pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality and that that is it. It's so harmful. The willpower that people with obesity have employed to try to get their weight changed is phenomenally high. Uh, You know, I I would argue for many, they've expended more willpower on this one aspect of their lives than anything else. And yet, you know, here's another example where we see bias in care. There are many uh, people who, bariatric surgeons, who will not operate on a patient uh, before they try some medical course of care first, when there's no doubt that they've already tried many courses of care because most everybody has. But also, what other condition do we have a very successful intervention where we say you can't have it till you fail this less successful intervention? (laughs) I just don't understand it. But yet, this is what we see in weight management all the time. And so this notion that if we just wanted it badly enough, we'd get there. I mean, again, speaking to my arrhythmia, I badly don't want it. Uh, I still have it unless I'm medicated. And uh, You know, there's no amount of me wanting it gone that will make it go away.
the other, uh, the example I give, and we can dive into the, the medications as well. Um, you know, because I have been prescribing a lot of GLP-1 receptor agonists, given that, uh, we had Wegovy approval in the, in, in the U S we had FDA approval for Wegovy for, uh, weight loss for individuals. The, the indication we have here, um, that in, although insurance can still be a challenge for us, Wegovy, which is, um, and I'll have Yoni explain it in more detail, but it's a GLP-1 receptor agonist that in the U.S. can be used for weight loss for individuals who have a, a BMI over 27 with comorbidities related to um, excessive adiposity or a BMI over 30 with no comorbidities. And this medication called semaglutide has been used, Yoni's been using it for eons under the name Ozempic or Rebelsis. And so this medication is life-changing for uh, patients who have excess adiposity that have struggled to lose weight. And the way I view it with my patients who are even hard on themselves, who say to me, I feel like I'm failing by taking this medication. And I will say to that patient, I'll say, I saw a patient right before you who is not obese. And this patient has an LDL of 190 and it is genetic. And this patient is honest, is going to be on a statin forever. And it is not their willpower that can get their LDL down. It is just a combination of genetics, epigenetics and things like that. And so for this patient with weight, I say, you can't be hard on yourself because we have medications now for the right patients that can really help. And I think that culture in general, diet culture in general has made everyone believed that it's their fault. Yeah. And so we have the same, so semaglutide or Wegovy is approved in Canada as well. We have the exact same experiences here with patients where, you know, I'll, I'll discuss medications with all patients who qualify and we have the same criteria here. I think it's important for doctors, our job as doctors is to inform patients about their options and then let yes. them choose which ones and not judge them for that choice. Exactly. Um, but When it comes to medication, I meet sort of three groups of people. There's the, I never want to be on any meds people. There's the, I'll see what I can do on my own first. And if I still need help, I'll consider meds people. And there's the, I'd like help right away people. Uh, But, you know, I will have the same discussion with, with each of those groups. And the most common sort of explanation people have for their own challenges with weight is somehow centered around psychology or mental health. You know, that they're, they eat for comfort, that they've got some food behaviors that are tied to some experience. And it may well be. But I always encourage those people to consider medication as a means to actually test that theory. Because suddenly, if we can affect a person's physiology in a manner that suddenly they don't struggle anymore, then clearly it wasn't their psychology that was leading to this problem. It wasn't because they were comforting themselves or they were depressed or they were anxious. It's just that we don't have a gauge on our forearms to show us our hunger hormone levels in our bodies. If we did, we'd simply look at that and say, oh, it's because I've got all these things going on in my body and that's why I'm hungry and that's why I'm, I'm struggling to make choices that I would, I so to speak, know I should make, but I'm just struggling to make them. And if it was as simple as knowing or the eat smarter diet and I'll just try harder, you know, that we wouldn't be chatting on this podcast, this issue wouldn't exist. Uh, So the drugs really are great in exploring whether or not that is something that's going on. Now, these medications, we are not yet at the 
you know, the, the holy grail in my mind is when the, the meds require no uh, counseling and they provide weight losses comparable to bariatric surgery with minimal side effects. And I think we'll get there within the next 10 to 20 years and then my practice will be obsolete, which will be great. You know, until that time, these medications do generally respond better to uh, organized patterns of eating and to counseling. They, they are, I think of them as amplifiers, where they amplify a person's dietary patterns. And if their pattern is one that enhances fullness, well, then a good amp, you'll get great sound coming out of your speakers. If your pattern is weak or poor or choppy, it doesn't matter how good the amp is, the sound's not going to be great. And so these drugs by themselves, maybe not as good as these drugs with some support behind them, but all this to say that they are changing uh, the situation for patients, but it is weight bias that leads patients to still believe that they are failures for needing them. I do not think I'm a failure for needing mine. They shouldn't feel like a failure for needing theirs. And, you know, I think most patients are able, most people are able to very quickly appreciate, oh yeah, we, we don't do this with any other disease. We don't do this with any other condition. And just briefly about weight, just for listeners. So scales don't measure health. Uh, scales don't measure happiness, self-worth, or effort either. Yes. Um, scales measure the gravitational pull of the earth at a given instant in time. And that will always be true. Whether a person, you know, needs to lose weight or not is a decision that that individual makes on the basis of whether their weight is affecting either their health or their quality of life. Uh, but I would never presume to tell people with obesity, uh, regardless of what the numbers on the scale say, that they absolutely require or need treatment. Uh, I've definitely met people who uh, are have no complications or consequences of their weight. And I encourage clinicians, rather than to assume that somebody wants to lose weight, you're certainly welcome to ask the patient, do you have any concerns about the effect of your weight on your health or your quality of life? And if they say no, then you can simply say, well, if you ever do, let me know. And, and that's it. It's all done. Um, but, you know, people get so caught up in it, but it all ties back to weight bias and the way this whole issue has been dealt with for so many years. And the weight bias is not going to go away given it's everywhere. Um you know, from kids' books and TV shows and movies to newspapers to doctor's offices. But the ship is turning around just very slowly. Very slowly. And that's a great point. I, and um, I actually, on a few other podcasts, we discussed this with Kevin Hall with regards to does everyone even need to lose weight? You know, we don't have the answer to that, right? Because there are plenty of people who are metabolically, you know, healthy that are just not feeling like they, they want to lose weight. And, and they may have excess adiposity, but they're doing great. And so I think also there's also another category of people we spoke about too, that it is not always the right time to lose weight for a patient. Right. And as physicians and clinicians in general, we have to really have empathy for our patients. It, you know, if someone is going through a life change, a divorce, their children are uh, starting school, there is a, a new job change. There are so many reasons why it could not be the right time for that person. And that's okay. Yeah, that goes back to the privilege piece, right? And right. and we need to respect that and explore that. Uh, you know, if a clinician is going to be recommending some sort of change to a person's lifestyle, they should have a really clear understanding of what that life is like uh, in terms of their obligations, in terms of their households, in terms of their backgrounds, 
And, you know, it's, it really does take a deep social history to have a good sense of where your patient's at. And it's valuable for you to be able to understand your patient, of course. Uh, but I don't think that many people take the time necessarily to explore that. It really, you know, I was humbled once when I was uh, earlier in my career and I was working with uh, an individual and she was struggling very much with cooking. And uh, I did not explore things the way that I should have explored things. I just kept on making suggestions about cookbooks and easy recipes, etc. And then one day she said to me, she said, you know, it, it, and, and she's given me permission to speak about this. So I, I, I you know, she said, uh, you know, it's just I, I just don't like being in my kitchen. And I said, why? And she said, it's, it's just it's too messy. And I had her send me a picture. It was very eye opening. This is an individual who had some mental health challenges as well, living with somebody else with challenges. And, uh, you know, we, we ended up having a system where they did spend a weekend cleaning up the kitchen and she'd send me pictures on a weekly basis. But boy, did I feel like crap not having explored things a bit further beyond simply saying, well, here's some recipes to try. And I, I think we're all very quick to, to forget that we need to understand the patients in front of us a lot more. I don't think it's an easy thing to ensure clinicians do because everybody's you know, tight for time and has their own belief systems, especially when it comes to food and lifestyle and diet. And again, this is why I'm so hopeful for medications to get better and better because there won't be any diet gurus anymore. There won't be any more ideology because there'll be meds that work and that's all we'll need. And that's not a bad thing because that's what we do with every other chronic condition that confers risk to patients. Absolutely. And just for anyone unfamiliar with uh, the data for Wegovy, in case you're wondering and curious, what's this medication, um, semaglutide, that we've been kind of raving about? So there was a trial called the STEP trial that was completed where they, for 68 weeks, people were randomized to either a placebo or to the semaglutide at uh, increasing escalating dose until the dose uh, that they reached was 2.4 milligrams subcutaneous um, injected weekly. And over 68 weeks, so a bit over a year, individuals lost over 15% of body weight that they were in the uh, semaglutide arm um, versus control. And both groups did have lifestyle uh, counseling um, as well, control and the semaglutide group. And so this is really clinically significant for a lot of patients and can make a huge difference. But I think that like uh, Dr. Friedhoff just mentioned is really important is that it's not always the right time for a patient. It's not always in their interest at this time. And it is not always something that it needs to happen at this moment. And I think that just presenting your patient with the options and just being there for them and supportive for them when they do decide that this may be right for them or not, I think is most important. I actually do want to get your per perception on this too, because I think that looking at these medications, I actually think have in some ways made a difference in um, some of the bias we see in a positive way. And the reason being is because I think we can look at this more as a neurohormonal, you know, sort of a situation rather than just saying it's a, you know, willpower self-control issue. So if we look at it more of a neurohormonal way, the biggest, most best relief I see for my patients when they have a follow-up is I don't feel 
stressed about food anymore. The patients, they start it and they say, wow, all of the pressure of having to make decisions. They actually, I've had so many patients. I have a patient who's a writer. Um, I have a patient who's an attorney. So many of my patients said that they've felt increased creativity or increased ability to focus on work because this dread of having to punish themselves, unfortunately, for, you know, uh, for diet and, and what kind of diet they should be on and how many calories they can eat, that that has been really removed with the medication, which what are your thoughts? Yeah, so I hear that all the time. So, you know, this medication works in the hypothalamus, which is the appetite control center of the brain. There, it activates some neurons called POMC neurons. And when they are firing, we feel decreases in hunger, decreases in cravings, and we feel full more rapidly. What's not described is what you're describing is that the constant soundtrack and perseverant thoughts and focus on food and when am I going to have what next and worrying about your diet and will I stay in control and so on and so forth disappears. And so I've had many people speak to the mental health benefits in a sense of this medication where, you know, the anxiety around food is gone. Uh, The depression around choice is gone. And that that alone can be very valuable. I was giving a talk at an insurance company or benefits provider in the before time. And this is back when we had the sister drug of semaglutide called liraglutide, which is the same idea just daily. And uh, one of the plan providers came up to me after my talk and said, what do I do when I get a note from a doctor asking me to cover this medication, but the patient hasn't lost very much or enough weight, so to speak? And I asked this guy, I said, think about this for a second. So you've got a patient who found so much value in a daily injectable drug that they were able to convince their doctor to write a physical letter to you stating it's worth continuing, clearly that's a valuable thing for that patient. And always it's this mental health piece. It's this quieting that voice, that thinking around food, the, you know, at times it's guilt, at times it's anxiety, at times it's frustration, at times it's just, I'm just thinking about it too much. And that that has tremendous value for people who experience that change. I can't even describe how many of my patients. It's just so joyous to hear them say, now I don't feel anxious going to a social event. I've noticed, so especially a lot of my patients, I've noticed this is anecdotal, but my patients who in the beginning who say to me, because they're hard on themselves and they'll say to me, do I have to be on this medication forever? And I always say to them, listen, if you, you know, we can go by whatever you want to do. This is, we tailor the therapy for you individually. But if you do end up being on it for a longer time, then that's okay too. But in the beginning, when they're really hard on themselves, I actually have noticed the majority of my patients, once they've been on it for quite some time, they are like, I actually want to stay on this forever because the freedom they feel from that just burden of worrying about it. And it really goes to show how much, like you mentioned, it works on the hypothalamus and the brain and how so much of this is out of our conscious control and how um, I view this as leveling the playing field. You can look at someone that's been thin their whole life. They have maybe a baseline higher GLP-1 level and they just haven't had to think about dieting the same way, you know? No question. No question. And, you know, as far as being on a long term, well, yes. So I I tell everybody who starts it that they should have an expectation that if it works really well for them, they will be on a long term. Just like if a person goes on a particular 
you know, medical nutrition therapy and they're on a particular diet, if you stop it, well, then the weight comes back after you stop. And we have data from the trial that shows that, you know, after a year, it was just published in April. That So after uh, in the individuals in the STEP trial, after um, they were randomized to people staying on the medication for an additional year versus people that were taken off of it. And there was about two thirds weight gain in the people who were taken off of it. So I, I agree with you. It's it's a long-term medication, which to me is- Not surprising. It's also yeah. not surprising for people to want to go off of it. I've come off right. my antiarrhythmics and only to have my arrhythmia come back. So <laughs> it's- it's the same idea, right? So nobody wants to be on drugs if they don't have to be. But if a drug is helping to decrease hunger, cravings, and enhance fullness, and you stop the medication, then you'll have your pre-existing uh, levels of hunger, cravings, and lack of fullness. And that may well bring back old calories. So people who are considering this medication, I think, need to go in considering this possibility as a long-term drug. Uh, it's, it's, uh, but for the people who respond well to it, which is, I would say the majority of people, majority, uh, then, and then people talk about tolerability too. This drug, it does for some people lead to some side effects, most often gastrointestinal, uh, but most of them dissipate. And so the most common one is nausea, staying on it and advancing it more slowly. It almost always goes away. I'd say maybe only two, 3% of people have to stop this drug as a consequence of ongoing persistent nausea. And I've literally never had to stop it for any other side effect. I've stopped it for a few patients where it just didn't work as well as they'd hoped. And that makes sense too. You know, there's thousands of genes and dozens of hormones we've identified that are involved in uh, eating behaviors and weight management. If a person's challenges aren't related to this particular pathway, perhaps this is not the drug for them. And again, I look forward to the future where we've got multiple drugs working on multiple pathways, just like we do with everything else, like high blood pressure. Mm-hmm. You know, we were talking before too about, you know, not people not wanting to be treated necessarily uh, with who have uh, weight because they have no impact or they just don't feel it's important to treat it. There's plenty of people walking around with high blood pressure who don't treat it and they decided Absolutely. not to. That's a person's choice. The yeah, person's there's choice. risks. You know, we know there's risks with long-term high blood pressure, but it's not a guarantee of problems. It's the same thing with weight. There's risks, but this isn't a guarantee and we're grownups. We yep. get to make choice. I also agree with you about the, we're on like the precipice of this just huge change in obesity medicine. And I think that I'm I'm really hoping that with the advent of this increase in unbelievable medications that we see a decrease in stigma. But one thing I will uh described that I think that you've noticed too, and you kind of met, mentioned it before, that's really frustrating, is there is a, a, a sect of physicians based on, I think, the stigma that comes with obesity who are anti-GLP-1 receptor agonists or anti-obesity medications and are verbal and vocal about that on social media. And I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it because my take on that is anyone listening who's who's mentioned, you know, that they are anti um, these medications, I would implore you to also really look deep inside and and think about the stigma and how that makes patients reading that feel. Yeah, no question. I wonder about those same clinicians if they're anti anything else, right? If there's only one drug category that you're opposed to utilizing or recommending uh, of all the drug categories out there, maybe there's something more to it than simply your, you know, medicine and science, that's for sure. And, you know, when it comes to GLP-1s, 
as with any medication, there are always experiments for, for the patient, meaning that um, if a patient tries a medication and it doesn't help them in any way, they don't feel any better, they, don't, they haven't lost any significant amount of weight, um, we stop it. Right. Or if it caused side effects that were untowards, it didn't go away, we'd stop it. Right. But why would anybody withhold a medication from somebody who themselves are, especially if they're asking for it, struggling with weight and its impact on their life in some capacity, whether it's medical quality of life or otherwise, and withholding that drug because of some belief that that individual has about usually um, some you know diet religion that they think they should be on. Absolutely. So I, I got a text from a friend of mine, a uh, family doctor, uh, letting me know that that same family doctor who wanted my appointment rescinded is giving a keynote address at uh, at a med school or at a family medicine conference. And you know, my first thought was, I just can't wait till the drugs are so good that diet gurus disappear. Yes. So if, if the only, you know, I think about diet gurus, I, it's just such a bizarre thing to me to imagine there's people who believe that there's only one way to treat something. You know, we don't have cardiologists who only prescribe ACE inhibitors, yeah. right? We, we don't, it's not a singular approach in any other area of medicine, but for some reason, and I think part of the reason is motivated bias, and that motivation can be personal experience, it could be financial. It could be a lot of different things. Absolutely, There are absolutely doctors out there who push this notion that there's one right way to treat this absolutely. hugely complex condition. You know, the day can't come fast enough for us to have meds good enough to make those talks pointless. You know, right now, those people get invited to talks because family doctors and other clinicians are desperate to find some solution for patients who themselves are, are struggling. But, you know, once we've got these meds and they're more established and they're, you know, they, they don't require counseling, so to speak, uh, I really do think that we'll have those conferences inviting people to come and teach them how to prescribe those drugs. And the day of the diet guru will be dead and done. I love that. Well, one last thing I wanted to touch on was for anyone listening, uh, you definitely have to check out a lot of Yoni's courses book, but also a lot of his written work. He writes phenomenal um, editorials and just great blog pieces that are just super helpful and very educational. But Yoni, you've been doing this for so long, just debunking misinformation. You've been doing so for so long. You have been in this space. What is primary motivator that got you there. I've spoken on my podcast a few times that it really hit me when my niece was diagnosed with leukemia, the amount of misinformation that was predatory online for for parents of children with cancer. It, it put a mission in me that I am just like out to just make sure that I can put as great information as possible. So what was there like a breaking moment? What made you really, so cause I, you've been doing this I, forever. I don't have like an origin story. Um, <laughs> I, I don't have one for why I got involved in, in obesity medicine. Quite honestly, the origin story for that was there was a conference in Las Vegas on obesity and I didn't have kids yet and I wanted to have a trip. So I went and <laughs> I liked it. Um, when it comes to speaking out, I've always had, for better or for worse, a very strong sense of right and wrong. And I've never been shy to speak my mind. I love that. And so, I, I you know, I speak to that as an opinionated man. I'm very privileged. Um, it's a lot easier to be a man who's opinionated. And, uh, you know, I think about my colleagues, especially through the pandemic, you know, who, who are women and the challenges they face, that you face, are very different yeah. than, than the ones that I face. 
And so it's easier for me to say, you know, I just, I need to speak my mind uh, because the ramifications for me aren't the same. And uh, I respect that. I mean, I, I, I don't know if I would have been able or would continue to do what I've been doing for so many years if I didn't have this place of privilege. And it's, it's really rough. And so kudos to you, to Dr. Gunter, to all the women who are speaking up despite the added enormity of challenge that that poses to them. Thank you so much. And Yoni, you are just such an inspiration. And I'm going to say this again. I know you're very humble, but you, you've been an enormously large part in my education and my development as a clinician and have through reading your work and knowing you personally, uh, I've become a better doctor. Way too kind, but thank you. I, I, you know, I, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's nice to have people say nice things about you. Well, let everyone know where they can find you on social media, where they can get your book, where they can read your articles, because truthfully, you, you sure. fill you fill a huge gap of the education that we need. So I'm easy to find. There's only one Yoni Friedhoff on the planet. Um, <laughs> uh, so on Twitter, I'm Yoni Friedhoff. On Facebook, I'm Yoni Friedhoff. Or maybe I'm Weighty Matters. Weighty Matters is my blog. To be honest, I, I've written over 3,000 blog posts, but since the pandemic, I've felt not comfy doing it. It's just not, the timing hasn't felt right. There's more important things. So it's been a while since I've updated the blog beyond sharing links about COVID. Uh, I do a column for Medscape, uh, which you could, people can access, but really it's, it's, uh, you know, the bulk of my approach and philosophy I wrote in my book, which as I said, I would have named differently, but it's called the diet fix. Uh, it was written pre-semaglutide, uh, but, uh, you know, the same principles apply whether a person is or isn't using medications. Uh, yeah, uh, that, that's, I guess, where you would find me. We'll link to everything in our show notes and a way for you to find Yoni and all of his work. Well, thank you so much, Yoni. Thank you. It was fun. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. I would love to keep bringing you all the latest health and wellness information and misinformation to debunk. So please do me a quick favor and leave a five-star rating review and share with a friend. Make sure to leave a comment about which wellness fad you'd like to debunk next, and I'll get to the bottom of it. Follow me on Instagram at MD and our podcast page at Wellness Fact Versus Fiction, and be sure to tune in next week.